Good morning, everybody. Welcome to church. It's great to have you today. My name is Tim, if we've never met before. And uh, if you were here last week, maybe for the first time, I'm the other Tim, okay, the, the JV, the J, Junior Varsity Tim. And it's great to have you. Oh, it's okay, it's okay. We're jumping into our teaching series, He is Greater, again this morning. Before we do that, real quick, I shared something with the first service that you may not feel quite as, as pressing as they do, if this is your regular service. But um, the 9 o'clock service especially is getting really, really full. It's shoulder to shoulder in there and, and not a lot of chairs left and things like that. I know you don't feel quite the same crunch here, but I have had people ask me in the last week, last two weeks, you know, are the leaders of the church talking about this at all? And it's not just in here, by the way, but uh, if you're in our children's spaces at all or if you teach in our children's ministry, you know uh, we're, yeah, it's getting tight in there as well. Uh, so I just wanted to let you know that, yes, uh, the leaders of the church are working real hard on this question. We've been having special meetings, I think, since November or something like that. And, you know, I, I think we're getting some clarity. We're moving closer and closer to uh, answers. But I just want to let you know what the conversations are happening. And if you have questions, thoughts, or whatever, please feel free to come and, and talk with me. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts and things like that. You also need to know that, uh, so the, uh, the, the leaders of the church are, are called elders, and we publish the, uh, a summary of our elder meetings uh, online at fcchudson.com. If you go to our leadership page, you can actually read through, you know, a lot of the, I, I wouldn't call, even call them decisions being made at this point yet, but a lot of where that conversation is at, it's actually publicly available to all of you anytime. There's also a link to those uh, elder leadership notes in the weekly update uh, from Tim Porter if you're on that list, okay? But again, if you have uh, questions or thoughts about, uh, you know, how to make the spaces work, I'd, I'd love to hear from you, okay? Everybody got that? Feeling good? Let's just, let's, 11 o'clock, let's stretch, just enjoy all that space you got around you. Oh, yeah. You picked the right service. You especially picked the right service today because I got so much feedback from the first service, you're going to get a the much better sermon, okay? Let's, <laughs> let's just face it. So, practice service was good. Welcome. Welcome to church, okay? We've been teaching through a letter in the New Testament called Hebrews, and you can find that on page 1002 in a Bible under the chairs in front of you. We'd love to have you follow along today. We're going to move around the page quite a bit, so it'd be great if you could have a Bible or, or on your phone, whatever you use to follow along in front of you. And I thought uh, last week, if you were here for Easter, I know many of you were, uh, I thought that our scripture reading last week was a great summary of the theme of Hebrews. And I just want to review that really quickly. This is from chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus. And I love the analogy uh, that Porter used last week of running a marathon. I'm, I'm not a runner by nature unless something is chasing me. I was a sprinter in high school and a little bit in college. So uh, even sprinters have to train over a really long distance. And I can resonate deeply with the sense of, uh, you know, if you've ever been in a race of just plodding a lot, you know, one foot in front of the other, just lift the foot, drop the foot. And sometimes that really is how uh, life is. Plod, plod, plod. One day after another day after another day, Darcy and I had another one of those moments this week where she looked at me and said, can, you, can we really do this for 40 more years? Can we keep going for 40 more years? I said, yep, 
We can, we can do it. We can keep going. And so I personally appreciate the theme and the sober vision that Hebrews has of reality. That life is a marathon, not a sprint. And uh, this chapter that we're going to look at today looks out beyond the end of the finish line. Uh, and the theme is rest. So if you're a runner or you've watched marathons, especially people who maybe aren't built to run marathons, what do they do as soon as they cross the finish line? <laughs> you know, they collapse. It's just, oh, we made it, boom. Uh, so, and that's the theme. So last week, the theme, you know, of chapter 12 is run the race with endurance. Today, the theme is there's, there's rest waiting for you at the end of that finish line. And we're going to be talking today about uh, why we endure and why we don't endure sometimes. So let's pick up right where we left off before Easter. This is Hebrews chapter 3, uh, page 1002. He writes, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. And I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. I want to share one more scripture. This is the Lord Jesus speaking in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verse 28. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So you can see our theme there in the scriptures that we read. The theme of rest is more than just physical well-being. 
Uh, but rest is an end to travail, an end to heartache, an end to sorrow and fear, an end to doubt and uncertainty, and an end to restlessness. In other words, especially in the scripture we read today, to, to have rest or to find rest is to be home. Has anyone here ever been homeless for any amount of time, for any reason? You've had to sleep in your car or something because somebody threw you out. You've had to crash on a friend's futon for a few weeks between leases or had your, had your home burned down or something like that. Then you know uh, that the, the excitement wears off in about two days. And then you just want to wake up in your own bed with your own people and your own stuff. Rest, as we're going to read it today, is in the scripture reading today, rest, rest is a place that's been transferred to a person. So before we jump into that, I just, the first few verses are a reminder of why Jesus is greater. So let's just remind ourselves of that really quickly. That first verse has all the themes of Hebrews so far woven into it, and I think in reverse order. It's like the author is like, you know, he's taking a step back, and he's kind of going back up through everything he's read so far. It, there's a reminder here of our new identity. He calls us holy brothers and sisters, so that's from chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, the, the judgment of God that should have been poured out on us was poured out on our perfect, uh, merciful, and faithful high priest. It reminds us that we're family now. We're part of a household. We're called brothers and sisters. And chapter 2, verse 11 says, Jesus is not ashamed to call you family. He's not ashamed to call you brothers. We're reminded that we have a heavenly calling. So we, we're... You know, the author wants us to stick with Jesus because in him we see what we were made for and where it's all going. We were made to reign and rule with Jesus and we see him, chapter 2, verse 9, we see him. He was made lower for a little while, but now he's crowned with glory and honor. And then finally, uh, verse 1 calls Jesus the apostle and the high priest of our confession. This goes all the way back to our very first week together. Remember, God has not sent a prophet this time. He's not sent angels. He's not sent any other messenger. This time in Jesus, God himself has come. And for that reason, this is his final word to us. And how shall we escape, it says, if we turn our backs on a salvation like that? We've not been given a religion, but a person. So in verse 1 there where it says where it talks about our confession and in, in verse 6 where it talks about our hope and our boasting it's talking about Jesus not a set of dogmas but his life his death his resurrection his word to us his identity as the son of God and the son of man all that stuff we've talked about in this series that's our confession Charles Spurgeon said my entire theology can be summed up in four words Jesus died for me there's the whole thing and everything springs out of that and so the rest of chapter of verse 2 through 6 is, is there to say so please don't turn your back on that Jesus really is simply greater than anything else we would be tempted to follow after in this case he's writing to Jewish Christians who are Think, considering a return to Judaism, to Moses. And he's saying, look, I know there's a lot of comfort in a religion that you can see. 
There's a lot of comfort in being able to see a priest and see a temple and see a sacrifice made on your behalf and to hear someone say, you know, this takes care of your sins and so forth. But he's saying, don't go back to that. Verse 3, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house is more honor is worthy of more honor than the house itself. So Moses should be honored as a faithful servant in God's house, but as the son of God, Jesus is the builder of the house, and as the son of man, he owns it. Okay? So Jesus simply is greater. So honor Moses, but even Jesus, or even Moses pointed to Jesus, and that's verse 5. He says, Now Moses himself was faithful in all God's house to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. I'll just share one example with you of a place where Moses speaks of Jesus. This is Deuteronomy chapter 18. Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, from among you, one of you, a, a man, you know, a human being. God is going to send another prophet like me, and it is to him you shall listen. So even Moses knew his word would not be final, but someone was coming later. And then the, here's the great challenge for our time together today. In verse 6, he says, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if, indeed, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. There's the challenge. We are God's house if, if, if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in hope. And that's a, that's a jarring note uh, to read. If you've been a Christian for more than 10 years, you know, you know this, okay? Uh, but this is clear throughout Scripture. This is clear throughout church history. And Jesus taught about this quite a bit. And that is this, that, that in the visible church, okay? So you're sitting right now in the visible church. Why don't you look around? Hey, neighbor. Hey, neighbor. Visible church. There is, a, there is a church we cannot see gathered in heaven right now, okay? But among the visible church, Scripture's very clear. Not everyone gathered here will finish the race. Not everyone gathered in the church will hold fast to their confidence to the end. And that's a really sobering thought. Why is, why is this here? Why, why did the Holy Spirit write verse 6 in this way? Is the goal here to shake the confidence of weak or struggling Christians? No. No. Uh, is the goal here to turn us all into really introspective, navel-gazing, self-analyzing, obsessive people Oh my goodness, is my faith real? Do I have enough faith? You know, you can probably judge by the tone of my question. The answer is, everybody say no. no. That's not the goal. The reason this verse is not here to shake the faith of weak or struggling Christians. It is not there to turn us all into navel-gazing 
self-obsessed people, where does the Spirit want you to look? It's in, this, it's in the Scripture. Consider Jesus. Consider your faithful Jesus, the, the faithful apostle and high priest of our confession. It is not the quality of your faith that brings you to rest. It isn't the quantity of your faith that brings you to rest. Jesus said, all you need is faith like a mustard seed and I will get you home. It's the object of our faith that is the issue here. The question in Hebrews is, will you cling to Jesus as your only hope? It's not asking what you did last night, okay? It's asking, what will you do with him now, right now? It's not asking what you're going to do in the future. It's asking, whatever comes, will you continue to cling to Jesus? I know sin. Some of you, you know, you've been around here long enough, you know. I know sin. I know what I am talking about today. Well may the accuser roar of things Tim Prince has done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. From, this is from a man named Samuel Riddout. He says, surely if any single thing depends on our faithfulness, we should tremble. If our salvation depends in any measure upon our own faithfulness, we are lost indeed. The point is to stir the church up to consider, is my confidence in Jesus? He says, it is only false professors who are driven away by a warning. And so that is the issue. It's not asking what you've done or what you will do. It's saying, would you just, would you just keep clinging to Jesus? Even if you're holding on by your fingernails. And he says, let's take a lesson from the history of Israel. He uses the history of Israel as a case study and why some do not hang on. Verses 7 through 11 are taken from Psalm 95. Uh, Jessa just read the first half of Psalm 95 to us during our worship time. It begins with, you know, this amazing uh, declaration of God's praise. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord and bow down in worship. Uh, the second half, though, changes tone to say something happened to Israel where they, where they weren't able to enter into the rest that God promised. And so here's the background to Psalm 95. God rescued Israel out of the most horrific slavery in Egypt and led them into the wilderness on their way to a place called the Promised Land. Uh, you've pro even if you've not been in church in a really long time, you've probably heard the phrase, you know, the Promised Land. It's described as a place flowing with milk and honey, a land full of rivers and streams and mountains and cities, lakes full of fish and green pastures for flocks and so on. It's the end of travail and heartache, the end of sorrow and fear. And the word that Psalm 95 uses is rest. God brought them out of slavery and was bringing them to a land of rest and they refused to go in. You can read about this in the last half of Exodus, the first half of the book of Numbers, but it's just one incident of rebellion after another along the way. After everything that they had seen, and they saw some amazing things, they just would not trust God. Not only that, but they pined for Egypt. 
They sat around whining and complaining about, wasn't Egypt so great? Remember those pots of meat that we used to sit around and the, the veggies and so on and so forth? And you wanted to say, do you remember the beatings? Do you remember the genocide? You know, but they had, they, they just thought, oh, it was, they romanticized their slavery and on and on it goes. But there's one incident in particular that Psalm 95 is talking about where God has brought the people right to the edge of the promised land. You can read this in Numbers 13 and 14. So there's the promised land spread out before them and they refuse to go in. The land was full of these fierce people called the Canaanites who had already hardened their hearts to the point where they, they were beyond repentance and God had said to Israel, all you have to do is go in. I promise you will win. And they refused to believe him. In fact, they were preparing to stone their leaders to death when God intervened and said that that is enough. And he swore in Numbers 13, I, they will never enter my rest. And they didn't. For 40 years, they wandered the wilderness until that entire generation had died, except for a few, Caleb and Joshua, who believed. And Hebrews presents this to the church, to you and I, as a case study for why people fall away from Jesus. So, why weren't they able to, re to, to enter into the rest their hearts longed for? Verse 7 says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Verse 9, Your fathers put me to the test. Verse 10, they always go astray in their heart. Verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Verse 13. See that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Verse 19. This is the conclusion. So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So this is the pattern that we see all throughout Scripture. Sin lies. It, it's deceitful. It promises you things that it cannot deliver. And we choose, to, we choose to believe sin rather than listen to the voice of God. That's called unbelief. And as it continues, it makes your heart harder and harder and harder. And it eventually leads us to fall away. Verse 12, fall away from the living God. Unbelief is a refusal to trust the word of God. The sin of unbelief is a decision. I am going to, I hear what God is saying. I'm going to trust my own wisdom. And so the plea of Hebrews is today, today, if you can hear his voice, please don't. Please do not harden your heart. We are all prone to unbelief. If you're here today and you struggle with, you know, behaviors or patterns of sin in your life, I've caught, so Thursday I'm working on a sermon about unbelief. And I wake up, I snip at my wife for no reason on Thursday morning. I'm at it, I'm mad, I don't even know why. And it takes me half the day to figure out this has nothing to do with my wife. There's this thing happening at work that I'm upset about. 
There, so everyone is prone to unbelief. And what happens though over time, if you don't take that seriously, your heart will get harder and harder and harder. You've probably experienced this with other people. We've probably all had or seen relationships where the trust breaks down to the point where they cannot talk any, they do not talk anymore. They simply cannot listen to each other. They will not hear each other. And that is what happened with Israel. God was not grumpy when he swore, they will never enter my rest. He, uh, he knows the condition of their hearts. The wrath of God is fierce, but it is not arbitrary. It's not capricious. He's never unjust. Hebrews is, let, is helping you to see it's possible to refuse and refuse and refuse until the situation is beyond repair. And God is pleading with you now, please do not harden your hearts. Verse 10, he says of Israel, they always go astray in their hearts. This is not going to end. and They will never enter my rest. And this is the warning of chapter three. This, is, this happened to Israel and if you are not careful, it can happen to us. So verse 12 says, please take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Please note that this is addressed to churchgoers. Okay, this is addressed to us to the visible church, to people gathered for worship. Unbelief is a unique danger for us. Sitting under the word of God's teaching every week and then seeing God at work in the lives of people around you and watching others in the congregation respond to life in faith and getting a taste of life in the spirit and sharing in the gifts of ministry together. Refusing to yield your heart to the Lord is a tremendous danger and may produce in you an effect that can't be reversed by you. No matter what God did in the story of Israel, no matter what God did for them, they would grumble and complain. Verse 10 says, they provoked me. Verse 8, they put me to the test. It's like this was some kind of game. It is not a game. If you have in your heart, if you, if you have a disposition of constant cynicism, always complaining, always grumbling about how unfair God is, how stupid his people are, how much better your life would be without God and blah, blah, blah. Please, please listen to Hebrews. If you just refuse to believe that God really is working all things together for your good, if you refuse to listen to his voice and nurse bitterness, the door is closing on a time when you may not be able to soften your heart again. So there are a couple of ways. Uh, a, two invitations from Hebrews to keep your heart soft until the end. Verse 12, take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Holding, holding fast to Jesus is not something that happens by accident. Sin is deceitful. 
Okay, it lies to you. And the plea of Hebrews is, for that reason, please be aware. Please have your head on, okay? Think, take care, and don't get lazy about holding fast to Christ. Remembering Jesus is not a burden, but it doesn't happen by accident either, especially in a context like ours. We live in an age of tremendous indifference and cynicism about spiritual things. There is no fear of God in the world that we live in today, and we have the means now to distract ourselves and our children from ever needing to think about heaven, hell, and eternal destinies. So take care, verse 12 says. The one pastor puts it this way. He says, if my Christian life is little more than conformity to the modes of worship that are in fashion where I live, okay? If my Christian life, I just, I just like going to church. These are my friends. I like the music. The preacher's modestly funny and whatever, you know. He says, if, if your whole Christian life is just conformity to the modes of worship and fashion, if it costs me no pain or trouble, if it puts me under no rules and restraints, if I have no careful thoughts and careful reflections about it, isn't it foolish to think that I'm striving to enter the straight gate? So how do we take care? How, how would we take care of our hearts to keep them soft? Two things. Uh, first of all, there are these simple things. Older theologians call them the means of grace. In other words, they're gifts that God has given to us to help keep our hearts soft. And today we more commonly call them spiritual disciplines, okay? They're accessible to everyone, but they're things like gathering with the church for worship and teaching, cultivating a love for God's word and engaging with God's word personally, learning to pray. Prayer is not a, like a super, it doesn't come naturally, it's something we need to learn. And learning to, how to pay attention to how our hearts work. If you find yourself angry at your spouse and you don't even know why, a wise person needs to learn to stop and kind of like, okay, what am I, what's driving me today? These are things, you know, that we want every person at Faith Community Church to be personally engaging in. Okay, now, I can, I can literally hear the eyeballs rolling in your head. You're thinking, here we are, we're having a nice time in Hebrews, and he's got to go and just say, read the Bible and pray more. I just, I would, I want you to hear these things in light of Hebrews. These are things that God has put at your disposal to help save your soul, to help keep your heart soft until you get home. I was uh, talking with my wife, Darcy, this week about something completely unrelated to this, but she was processing some of her own experiences with these means of grace that we've just been talking about. So for longer than I've known Darcy, going all the way back to college, she's made it a practice to spend time every day reading and praying, and she likes, usually there's, there's writing involved. She's a writer. Uh, and she was talking about how often she's thought to herself, why do I keep on doing this? Because it seems like I, I will spend, you know, 20 or 30 minutes reading God's word and then I spend time praying and then I spend time writing about it and five minutes after I say amen, I am yelling at the boys. 
She said, what? why do I waste my time? changing me, okay? And I'm studying Hebrews and saw it. This is not what she said. I'm translating what I, what I heard her saying, okay? What she's, what she's saying, when people say, you know, it just, it just doesn't work. I've tried Bible reading. I've tried prayer. It just doesn't work. What we mean is, I did all that and I, don't, I didn't feel anything. Or I did that and I, I didn't change. I'm not changed. Still yelling at my kids. Or I tried all that and my life still stinks. So I prayed and read my Bible like the preacher said, my life still doesn't work. It doesn't work. And what, what Darcy was saying is what she has found over time is that, you know, all of this time, these things, what she's been doing is keeping her heart soft so that she continues to be able to hear the voice of God. So when crisis hits, she's not destroyed by that. And I've seen that in the last year. These means of grace are how we take care and how we keep our hearts from growing hard. Second thing that this scripture talks about is there in verse 13, and it says, the thing about sin that is hard is that it, it lies, it's deceitful. And the problem is that we are often not aware as we are losing our grip on the Lord Jesus. Uh, it happens by degrees. We start rationalizing things, we negotiate with sin, Eventually, we find ourselves hiding parts of ourself from other people, and eventually, we just really do become fully convinced that there is a better way than Jesus, and he's not that great. And so the plan of God for our faithfulness to the end is a strong connection to other Christians who, look at verse 13, will exhort us every day as long as it's called today. Your Christian parents your church are one of the means that God has given to save your soul and to lead you home. Again, I, I, I feel your eyes rolling. Is this another lecture about how we need Christian community? Yes, it is. But I, I need you to understand why. Because this is how God, these are the appointed means, your, your, your loved ones, your missional community, your people, they're God's means for bringing you home to rest because sin will lie to you and you're not that smart on your own. But how, how many of true or false, it's a lot easier to see other people being dumb than it is to know them when you're dumb. Thank you. And that's why we've been giving each other. So here's, this is an analogy that we use in some of our leadership training here at Faith Community Church. Um, there are front porch people, there are living room people, and then there are second story people. Okay? Everyone here has front porch people. Front porch people are people, you, you like them, you're glad they came over, you know their name, um, you know the song, and they're always glad you came, you know. Those are front porch people. And then there are living room people. You know, when, you, when you're in a person's living room, you actually can learn a lot in someone's living room. I love looking at people's bookshelves. What do they read? I, I, how do they decorate? You get to see how their family kind of functions. Not all their dirty laundry, right? But you get to see how their family functions in the living room. You get to see the dirty dishes in the sink from the living room, all that kind of thing. But then there are second story people. 
how would it be if the first time I came over to your house, I just invited myself right upstairs, went in the closets, what's in the bedroom, opened the medicine cabinet, what kind of drugs are we taking now? Oh, this is really good. This is a lot of fun. How would that go? Probably not be invited back, right? Or at least, you know, the, the word would spread, Prince is super weird. This is a true story, true story. First time I went to Pat Streams, he's Pat Streams, a pastor. First time I went into his house, I went straight to his fridge and opened it up. And his wife was like, what the heck is going on? Like, this is what I do. <laughs> so I'll do that at your house too. You're great. The second stretch, so I've been here for 11 years. I think I can count maybe on three hands the number of adults at this church who've actually been in my second story. There's no reason for you to go unless I need your help, I've invited you, or you're so much like family, you're watching my kids. Those are the only people who've been in my second story. But everyone needs those people. If we're, so if you're, if you're new to Faith Community Church, maybe you've just come since Easter over the last few months, this is our front porch. Okay, and, on, and online, this is our front porch. And we hope that when you come, people learn your name, you feel welcomed, you feel noticed, you feel genuinely loved. We hope that you'll do that for other people here on the front porch, okay? Um, I would say that serving in a lot of our ministries is a front porch kind of place. Come hold babies with us, come teach kids with us, shake hands at the door with us. Those are, I would say, front porch kinds of activities. We have these things called missional communities that literally meet in living rooms, okay? Those are living room people. These are gatherings of, of households together. They share a meal together. They open the Bible together. Uh, they, they know each other at a deeper level than the front porch. I would also say that some of our serving teams get to a living room place because they spend so much time together. But everyone also needs second story people. And that, it's, it's that reason that all missional communities are required to have a small group component attached to them because those relationships take time. You don't, you don't share your medicine cabinet with a lot of people, okay? But there need to be some because the, the is it a command? The imperative here is exhort one another every day. So if you're new to Faith Community Church, okay, welcome. We, we love having you. We just want you to know this is the front porch. There's a lot more in the house when you're ready. And we're a church that's exhorting one another every day as long as it's called today. These are God's appointed means for keeping us from being deceived by sin and losing our grip on the living God. One last thing before we uh, close here. And the worship team, you guys can come up. In the Old Testament, the promised land... The land of rest is one of the most prominent themes of the whole Old Testament. I used to have the statistic. I couldn't find it this week, but it's in like the top five themes of the Old Testament. So God is the number one theme and then people and then I don't know. But the promised land, the land of rest and blessing and, and goodness is like in the top four or five themes of the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it never appears one time. Never again. As soon as Jesus comes on the scene, all of that language of blessing and holiness and promise and inheritance is transferred from a land to a person. And so Jesus says to you today, come to me. You don't need to move to Israel. Come to me. 
everyone who's weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is the end of all our toil and travail, all of our heartache, all of our confusion, all of our sorrow, all of our fear. Jesus is home for us. And what he has done in giving himself that we could be free from the penalty of sin and now to walk in fellowship with God. He is home. This is interesting too. The Bible never one time, not a single time in the whole Bible, does it talk about going to heaven. Did you know that? Not a single time. It is always so-and-so has fallen asleep and he is with the Lord. That's always how it's talked about. Because he is our rest. And if you want rest today, all you have to do is come. It doesn't matter what you did last night. It doesn't matter what the future holds for you. If you would come and hold on to him, he will hold on to you. So as we sing, if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, just as we sing, tell him, I am going to hold on to you no matter what comes, and I thank you for holding on to me. If you're here and you know you, you were made for rest, you are longing for rest, you are weary and burdened, and you hear what I'm saying, and you hear God saying to you, today, today, please don't harden your heart. And I want you to just say to him, okay, I will hold on to you as long as you give me grace to do it until the very end. Let's stand and sing.